You're listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast, your source for news, discussion, and debates about the Vols and Lady Vols basketball programs. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. I am Nathaniel Rutherford, joined by Gene Henley, and we appreciate you all tuning in for this new episode of the podcast. Right on the top bat here, I want to say thank you all for listening. And again, we're available everywhere podcasts are found, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and really a bunch of other places. Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, you name it, we're on it. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook as well, at Vol Hoops Fever on Twitter and Vol Basketball Fever on Facebook. So go follow us, go give us a like, and be on the lookout for some news coming soon from us, expanding some things here, hopefully adding a few things uh, to what we're doing. As the offseason is upon us, we're in June. The season is, oh gosh, I don't know, several months away at this point. Uh, but we, we have, uh, we touched on the last episode when I had guest Brandon Martin on as a host of Tennessee hosting official visitors this month. And actually, as of the recording of this episode, Tennessee does have uh, one official visitor in town, I believe, currently, and that is Kaysen Wallace, who's a highly rated uh, 2022 kid, a, a combo guard, who's, a, I believe, a five-star on 247 Sports. So that is the first guy who's in here. Next week, you'll have BJ Edwards, and I'm now I'm suddenly forgetting who the other person is, but you, you, you get the idea. That it seems like every weekend now, um, in the month of June, Tennessee is going to have a highly rated prospect or two on campus. Gene, before we kind of get into the meat of this podcast, I wanted to discuss briefly about the news at the SEC on Thursday. Uh, they voted on the intra-conference transfers for all sports, and they approved it. it. That was expected. You know, we had the one-time transfer rule pass for the NCAA, but the you know, with the caveat of hey, there's still certain conferences that need to pass it for interconference or intra-conference transfers. You know, from one SEC school to another, the SEC will allow that, and it goes into effect immediately. So, in Tennessee's case, in men's basketball, that's great news because it means Justin Powell will be eligible to play. And that also means good news for, gosh, I, I mean, I don't know how many schools. I, I'd, go, I'd pull up here and look it up in a second. But it, it seems like there's like six or seven other uh, schools out there, other players, excuse me, who have transferred from one SEC school to another. Gene, this was expected, um, but I ultimately think it's good news. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I figured it would happen. I for Tennessee's sake, was hopeful it would happen. Uh, but it, it is very good news for Tennessee because they, they're definitely going to be relying on Justin Powell to play um, quite a bit this season. And, and those other schools, like I said, I'll, I'll pull up a list of some of the interconference or interconference transfers, but a lot of those guys are transferring to other schools and expected to um, play some significant minutes. Yeah, and yeah, I think Kentucky got a couple of kids, although they're not in conference. I mean, uh, but... Um, you know, I think it's from like Tennessee's perspective, it's really good just because, uh, you know, like they're they're, they're going to need uh, they're they're going to need something from Powell this year. Like I'm not saying I'm not here to predict leading score or anything like that, but you need him to be a quality piece. And if you have, you know, if you've got that, then you again, like I, I think, it, it, regardless of how great he is, if he's a good player for you, then you just made your team better and didn't even really have to go through the whole recruiting circuit. You got, you let, you know, you got a chance to evaluate him in college basketball games last year. Um, so you know what he can do and you know, he's a good player. So, um, 
so yeah just just getting that just getting that pass is uh we can say massive or whatever you want to call it news uh for the you know for the university of tennessee and uh i think that'll be that'll be a good piece of them um, going into next season and I pulled up this list here, and I, I think it's updated. It was updated as of about two weeks ago. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but it's by Andrew Hutchinson of Rivals, the Arkansas Rivals affiliate. Um, it's titled SEC Hoops Portal Party, tracking transfers across the conference. He, he broke down all the people who transferred out of the conference, people who transferred in the conference, and he has a list here of um, all the players who have done intra-conference transferring. There's eight of them. You, obviously, you have uh, Justin Powell going from Auburn, Tennessee, but you also have a couple of Georgia kids transferring from Georgia. Well, Georgia lost like almost all their roster yeah. transfers. But uh, Ty Fagan is going from Georgia Ole Miss. Ethan Henderson is going from Arkansas to Texas A&M. Katie Johnson is going from Georgia to Auburn. Uh, Xavier Pinson from Missouri to LSU. Jackson Robinson is going from A&M to Arkansas. Desi Seals is going from Arkansas to Auburn. And then Severe Wheeler is going from Georgia to Kentucky. So those are your your intra-conference transfers right there. That, that, those are some interesting ones, some big names. You mentioned Kentucky a second ago, G. I mean, that, getting Severe Wheeler, a guy who, I thought, I mean, I thought for being, I think he's undersized, if I remember correctly, he's, he's like 5'10 or something like that. For being an undersized guy, I thought he was pretty, you know, active and productive for Georgia. I think that's that's probably a pretty, we haven't really talked about a whole lot of the other transfers in the conference on this podcast, but I think it's a pretty good pickup for Kentucky, and I think really the the SEC as a whole, I've talked about it with Blake Lovell when he was on um, a few weeks ago. This league really picked up, I mean, a lot of quality players via the transfer portal and the recruiting. This league, to me, I think it's not still going to be like, you know, 10 deep where you're going to have to worry about, you know, every single team. They're going to have like 9, 10 teams make the NCAA tournament, you know, like you saw in baseball um, recently. But I think the the top of the the top just got better, and I really think the middle got a little bit stronger. I think you you probably have seven teams that you can really look at and say, hey, those those are some pretty good teams that can beat almost anybody else in the conference. This this SEC, well, I don't think it's going to be the the best conference in college basketball this year. It's gotten a lot better this offseason. It, it's been a good offseason overall for the SEC, and that that has to you know it's been a great, it's been a great offseason for Tennessee, but they're not alone. So of all fans, you know obviously celebrate the offseason Tennessee's had, but also be aware that Tennessee isn't the only SEC school that's made some significant tr- contributions this offseason. Yeah, and that's good. That's, it's good because, you know, we talked about this, you know, before the rebrand that I always questioned is how good this league was going to be. And, uh, uh, yeah, as it stood, it was, you know, Bama was pretty good. Arkansas was uh, turned out to be good. LSU turned out to be good, and then it was just a bunch of, yeah, yeah, you know that, that it was just. Unless I'm forgetting somebody, I mean, I think wasn't. Uh, I mean, Missouri had questions, Tennessee had questions, so I think for all these teams to kind of start, obviously Kentucky was just a mess last year. Um, I, I think that, you know we brand this as a Tennessee podcast and, you know, and always say like, you're a fan, I'm an observer and I want to see a league. I, I want to see, like for me personally, if I'm a Tennessee fan, I want to see Tennessee the best team in a good league. And so like you felt, you feel like if you're a Tennessee fan that you improved the roster substantially, you, you kind of got rid of some dead weight and you, you improved it with some people that you think can contribute, even if it's not right away. Um, uh, and uh, 
So, like, you, you feel as though that you've improved in every single position. And if that's the case, then you're going to be better. And if you're better, then, hey, we'll see what happens. But, like I said, now you're, you're, you're now in a position where Tennessee has a chance to be a top two, top three team in a really good league, whereas last year they were fourth in an average league, which actually looks a lot worse, even with the 18 wins. Yeah, uh, that, that's a very good point. And, yeah, it, it, if you have the overall profile of the league, I mean, th- this was something that I remember way back when the um, conference expanded in 2012, and I remember that being a conversation of, hey, we need to get better coaches, we need to get better product in here because we're only getting two, three teams in the SEC into the tournament. And those, those bubble teams aren't getting the benefit of the doubt because our conference as a whole is not very good. So you saw teams like Tennessee's early Conzo Martin teams that were bubble teams that had, really honestly, I think Conzo's first team, if I remember correctly, had actually a better resume on paper than what Bruce Pearl's last team did. But for one, Bruce Pearl is going to get a little bit of a, I think, a little bit of an edge, even with the NCAA stuff, a little bit of an edge over what Conzo did at that time. But, you know, that still, the SEC was not good. Not very deep, especially in 2012 or in 2000. Yeah, that, that would have been, I guess, 11-12 season um, around then. So it, it wasn't as good back then. So that they've made a they made a strong push to you know improve the play of SEC basketball over the last ten years, and I think they've done a good job of it. It it definitely is a lot better of a product than what I remember a lot of SEC basketball being in the kind of the early 2010s and and, and late uh, the the 2000s decades. So it's it's improved, and like you said, I think it's only good news to Tennessee. Yes, it's going to probably lead to a few more losses on your resume on your on your record but it's also going to prepare you better for postseason plan i think that's the key your your record in regular season's great and all but we've talked before about how the mentality of of some ball fans or some you know non-traditional basketball schools is different than those blue bloods where the kentucky or a a duke or a north carolina yeah they, they like having nice regular season records but they really don't care a ton about the losses until they start coming in late February and in March. And for Tennessee, I think Vol fans need to realize, hey, yeah, having, you know, 28 or 27 regular season wins is fantastic. And that's that's great. That means you're a good team. But really, if you go out and fizzle out and, you know, only win a couple of games in, in March or April, that doesn't – that that that's a, a bigger knock against you. So we've talked about that on the podcast before. I don't want to re- reiterate that, that, that too much here. But that is, you know – Again, SEC one-time transfer or the one-time transfer will pass. The SEC interconference transfer is also passed, so that's good news for Tennessee and Justin Powell and, as I mentioned, the other seven um, SEC players here who are transferring from one SEC school to the other. Uh, Gina's looking at that list. Georgia has had nine players transfer off the roster this offseason, so they legitimately are like a brand-new team. That is uh, good luck, Tom Cream. That Good luck. <laughs> you guys are working yeah, out Yeah, doing that. Doing that going into year what three or four? That's a bad luck, man. Yep. I, I mean, just just the personal opinion. This is year four for him, and he's completely for the second time in four years. He's basically replacing the entire roster, and I, I don't care how good Georgia football is. Um, you, you can't just completely slide, uh, you know, under the radar with what you're with roster flips every two years like especially if you're not winning with any of them like Chung Calipari can get away with that he's got a chance I mean I don't care how far that championship uh, how long ago that championship was that's a national championship 
And even without that national championship, he's got numerous Final Fours and national championship game appearances. You can do roster flips. Like, he had one bad season, and as last time I checked, that roster is getting a little bit older this year at, at, at Kentucky. Uh, and that guy knows how to do that. Tom Crean has never shown he can do that. So, as you said, good luck, because it's, that stuff, you should not be doing that in year two of I mean, you know, in, in year four for the second time, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I mean, like George is paying this guy to do a job and he's doing what he can with that job. It's just uh, Anthony Edwards is not walking out in that door anytime soon. No, exactly. Um, moving on here to the main topic. I, I mentioned Duke there and that hits the, our topic here, the, of the main episode or main part of the podcast here. This week, oh gosh, I want to say it was Wednesday, uh, Tuesday. I, I don't know, Jim. My my days are all mixed up. I think it was Wednesday. Um, it came out that Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski at, at Duke, was going to retire. Not not right now, but after after this upcoming season. So next off season, he'll be retiring. This this upcoming year will be his last year. And I, they got me thinking with him retiring, with you know Roy Williams retiring. Those are two you know guys who's been around for decades in college basketball. You you also wonder, you know, who's next? A, a guy like Jim Beheim comes to mind because he's been around for a long time as well, has had different health issues and stuff. You know, you wonder about him. But it also got me thinking, you know, while I, I looked it up, Coach K is 74 and Roy Williams is 70, so they're they're in their 70s. You know, they were a little older. Rick Martin's is in a spring chicken, though. He, he is just 66. Actually, he's about to turn 67 here in like a month and a half, I think. Um, you know, he's in his late 60s. He signed that five-year contract with Tennessee two off-seasons ago in the 2019. Yeah, so he's, he's entering his third year of that fifth-year extension or new contract, whatever. So technically got three years left on that contract. It'd be about 68, 69 when it, when it finishes up. It got me thinking, what does happen with Tennessee after Rick Barnes? Because we, we've looked at Duke and North Carolina as, as you know, they're blue bloods. They operate differently than a lot of programs do. But they went out and they've already decided to hire their own with, you know, North kind of already making a hire. Duke already tabbing Shire as the, the next guy. Once Coach Kate does step down next year, that he's going to be the, the head coach. Both those guys, Hubert Davis and, and Shire, were, are both, um, you know, guys within their program, guys who played at, at their respective schools. They're, they're hiring with their own, hiring within, essentially. Tennessee doesn't really, and Tennessee's obviously not a blue blood, but it got to thinking because of Rick Barnes and his kind of stature in the college basketball world. He's, you know, he's considered a, a pretty high thought of coach. He's considered probably one of the top ten coaches in college basketball right now um, by any you know anyone you ask, not not just Vol fans, but by anybody in the SEC and kind of the national landscape. I, I would say probably most people would put in the top ten. When he steps down, Tennessee doesn't have like a, a former player or someone who. It, you know, comes to mind who's in the coaching world who you'd say, yes, that's that's the guy who they need to go out and get that has been an assistant coach, has been learning under this guy, or has been a head coach and is ready for the next move or whatever. They, they don't really have that. Uh, at least I'm, unless I'm forgetting someone. That, you know, I mean, Bobby Mays has done AAU stuff, but I don't think he's going to come coach at Tennessee as a head coach. So that leaves me thinking, you know, is, is it as simple as, you know, Rick Barnes, when he steps down, they want to go hire a Rick Barnes protege? You know, do they go back and get a, a Kim English, a Des Oliver, um, a, you know, one of the other guys who I'm blanking on that was here in his first couple years that went on and got head coaching positions. Um, Rob Lanier, that's, that's what I'm trying to think of. You know, a guy like that, you know, Michael Schwartz, who's been at Tennessee for a long time. 
Or do they go, you know, an assistant who's been at Tennessee before, like a, a Steve Forbes, or, you know, I don't know where he's going to be in, in three or four years, but a, a guy like Jason Shea also pops to mind. I, I wonder if it's going to be a case of that where they kind of try to stay, quote-unquote, in the family a little bit, whether it's the Rick Barnes family or kind of the Tennessee family to an extent of, of a, you know, hiring a former assistant coach who's been in Knoxville before and understands it. Or does Tennessee go the route of, you know, kind of what a lot of other schools do that aren't blue blood programs and go just try and find, you know, another hot up-and-comer name like they did what they've tried to do multiple times or that you look out, look at most of the other hires Tennessee's made before Rick Barnes. It was Donnie Tyndall who was at a mid-major. It was Konza Martin who was at a mid-major. It was Bruce Pearl who was at a mid-major. It was, uh, oh gosh, Buzz Peterson who was at a mid-major. <laughs> I forget where Jerry Green and, and Kevin O'Neill came from, but I don't think they had like extensive backgrounds when, before they came to Tennessee, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's been a lot of going out and trying to find the hot name, going out and trying to find you know an upcoming coach. And to an extent, that'd be the case. I mean, Steve Forbes would be a sitting head coach, but you know, I'm 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 curious your thoughts on it too because I think if it's if it's in th- within three years or so if it's within this contract that Rick Barnes is in now if he decides he's done after this contract and he doesn't come back after that I do think there's a high likelihood that it's a some sort of a, a, a guy who's attached to Rick Barnes whether that is you know one of his assistant coaches who's on staff right now or on staff at the time or someone who's been here before under him I mean Steve Forbes to me makes sense and that would if I were you know Tennessee's administration, I, you know, who knows what happens in three or four years, maybe Forbes just bombs and does not have a, you know, is awful at Wake Forest, and that changes your opinion of him. But Forbes would be, a, you know, near the top of my list if I'm Tennessee. But just because a guy's coached here before doesn't mean he's going to have success as a head coach. So, I'm curious your thoughts on it. I'll also be curious our listeners' thoughts, and you know, let us know um, on Twitter or anywhere out in comments and on Facebook or anything like that what you think, but I, I think it would, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see, you know, kind of continuing on and, and Rick Barnes kind of trying to have, you know, having hand it like what, what coach came and Roy Williams did of saying, Hey, you know, go find a, a guy within the system here, you know, go get a Rob Lanier, go get a, 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 Kim, a Kim English. Although Kim English is a little different. He's not like a Rick Barnes protege. He obviously, you know, would make more sense for him to go you know back to Missouri, for example, but still, you know what I'm saying? Someone who coached under Barnes and has ties to Tennessee. Yeah, I think, the the best choice in my opinion um because there is no like what makes the situations different with coach k and uh roy williams is that they had a a level of longevity at their particular school Mm -hmm. so they had built coaching trees at their own particular school um i think if i recall uh, Rick had an assistant that was at maybe t- somewhere in Texas, and he, uh, he, I think he was like a head coach at somewhere in Texas. Maybe last name starts with an A. I'm sorry if I'm blanking on it, but uh, I'll look um, at his coaching tree and see. Yeah, like I think he had. I think he's now an assistant at Texas, but I feel like he was uh, maybe at Texas El Paso or Texas San Antonio, um, and. So you've got him, then you have um, you have Rob Lanier at Georgia State, uh, and you have Des Oliver at ETSU. Um, if if you're going to go with a coaching tree per se, 
Rob Lanier is his longest tenure guy, basically. Uh, I think he was with him at Texas, and then obviously he was with him in Knoxville. And what what I think you have to ask yourself is like, what are you wanting next? Like, in in Coach K's in Coach K's um, position and Roy Williams' position, you're talking about Hubert Davis and uh, John Shire, guys who had been there for a while and understood it and were the lead assistants because maybe they knew that there was a certain level of finality coming in those coaches' particular careers um, where none of none of like Rick's guys have really you know, they're, they're trying to build some, I mean, they're trying to build some, like some stuff. Like I looked, uh, I'm pretty sure Rob Lanier is, uh, I want to say 35 and 19 at Georgia state, which is solid. Um, they were 16 and six this past year, you know, qualities. I think they got beat. Maybe they lost, they lost to app state. And I think the semifinals of, of their conference tournament, or maybe it was a championship game. I, I didn't really look, see which one it was, but, uh, they lost to App State, who won that conference tournament, and like so. Like what I would have to ask myself is, if I'm if I'm coaching, I'm sorry, if I'm making that decision, is what do I want from this hire? Do I want to maintain what is is being built? And then I have to ask myself a really difficult question. And this is a question thing I could ask you: What is being built at Tennessee? I mean, it sounds like a very stupid question. But you went from uh, what, like, fifteen and sixteen wins under Rick the first two years with mid-level prospects that were good basketball players. Then you went that then you those players improve. They they get comfortable in the system. They win twenty six games. Those are the same mid-level prospects. Everybody loves stars. They were threes. Um, and then they win thirty one games mid-level prospects, three stars, all that, that, and the other. And then they now bring, you know, then now the floodgates open as far as bringing all these top top 10, top 15, uh, top 25, whatever, McDonald's All-Americans, whatever you want to call it, prospects. Um, but the wins have not followed. So do is there a definitive answer as to what's being built in, in Knoxville? I don't. I know that sounds crazy because when you're talking prospects, you're like, "Well, look at what they're bringing in." But the winning has not followed yet, and we can say, "Well, it's just been this." He's only been there what six years. It's not like he's been there twenty years. He's only been there six years, and it's not like he started. He walked in recruiting all these high level players. You know, like are they are, are they building? I think we have to ask ourselves what is being built in Knoxville first before we start talking about a legacy as to what should replace. Because if Steve Forbes comes in, Steve really, Steve is so tied into JUCOs and mm. stuff that he he has the ability to bring in a ton of high you know high caliber JUCO players, really athletic players, really good basketball players, and really good dudes. Like I've been around those, I was around some of those ETSU teams, and I spent a lot of time talking with Steve. Because if you've ever, if you're in the media, if you're, and then, and especially if Steve respects your basketball acumen, he'll talk to you for days. Uh, like I, I would eat brunch with him and have conversations and just talk ball. It was great. Um, but 
you know, like as you're learning, I mean, as you look around and you start to understand, you know, the ideologies and what works. You know, Steve has to build things differently at Wake Forest now because you don't necessarily have the Juco things. You would have those in Knoxville. Um, if Steve comes in and say Rick wins like 23 to 25 games over the next few years or whatever, whatever the case may be, um, and then he leaves, is the stand? I mean, Steve can get you there immediately. I mean, I think Steve can can do better, but is he going to be the person that maintains what has been started? Whatever the definition of what's being built in Knoxville, because I think you ask yourself, and I don't one hundred percent know the answer as to what's being built. Duke went one way for so many years, mm-hmm. and then Coach K decided at the end that he was just going to go out and you know and go get these one and done guys. When Kentucky gets rid of you know when Kentucky and Calipari part ways, are the are they going to replace him with another one and done guy? Or are they going to change things? Because he's been one and done from the beginning. That's been consistent. What Rick's done is not consistent. He won. He won more. With lesser players, it's, it, yeah, I get it. It's been a year and a half, and you know, it's been two years. And one of those years was just crazy with, you know, with Lamonte and all this, that, and the other. But they won, I think, seventeen games that year, and they won eighteen games last year, if I recall. So I would need to see what is being built before we made a definitive answer as to. Um, who is next because that that can go a lot of different ways that's a really good point i hadn't really thought about that way before uh but before i get into my answer the guy you're talking about i believe of the assistant coach you're talking about was chris ogden um Ah, yeah he went to texas arlington yeah that's what it was yeah the, the most recent ones for for barnes were ogden oliver lanier and kim english but he's he's got plenty of other guys i got fran franchilla frank haith Herb Sendak, um, Dennis Felton, of other guys who've who've been under uh, Rick Barnes and have gone on to coach other places, but yeah, uh, Ogden was who you're thinking of. But to answer your question, to to talk about you know what's being built Tennessee and is that worth preserving and kind of you know building upon for the next hire? That that's a really good question. That's a tough question to answer because we I like you said I don't know that we know what's being built yet because you you saw the the most success that Rick Barnes had was with the the underrated, I guess you can say, the, the three-star team, the, the 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 whole roster that was guys rated, you know, outside the top 150 of whatever recruiting service you want to look at. And obviously, some, some of those guys were underrated, but some of those guys did come in and, and <laughs> like Adam Schofield was not was not in basketball shape. These were guys who had skills but really needed to be taught and honed and were also just happened to be, you know, good fits into the roles they were placed in. Like a, you know, a Jordan Bowden, for example, was a really good fit into the role he was placed in. We saw that when he had an expanded role and had to do something different in his senior season, it didn't work out for him as well. And obviously, there are other reasons why that was the case. But um, you you talked about that before on this podcast, Gene, about why you know Bowden suddenly went from being a, a thirty-eight or, or 30, 39 percent three-point shooter to like. A 28% three-point shooters last year. There, there are reasons he didn't have the guys around him, and he had to be. He was in a very different role, and 
it was him and Lamonte Turner, and then suddenly it was just him and a bunch of young guys. So, um, but you have that as the most successful. And then this past year, I still think this past season would have been more successful overall, slightly, if not for COVID. But even still, I, I don't think this team, in hindsight, I don't think this team this past year would still have lived up to a lot of the expectations fans had put on them. Media-wise, I think the expectations were lower than what fans were expecting. But I don't think on paper it was crazy for fans to expect, you know, going to Elite Eight or, or, or you know, finishing one or two in the SEC. I mean, Tennessee was picked to, fit, to win the SEC, and, I, I, you know, we, we did the same thing. We thought Tennessee was going to win the SEC. Um, but then Alabama and Arkansas had to come out and prove really most everybody wrong. And to be honest, I don't know anyone who picked either one of those two teams to finish one or two, and it wasn't just a, a fan of those two schools. But I think that is a question, and I'm not trying to cop out here. I don't know that's a question we can answer until we see what this level of recruiting that Tennessee has ascended to, how it pans out. We've had one year, really, of seeing what it's like for Tennessee to bring in high-level recruits and have a roster comprised of more than just kind of one five-star to four-star. You know, in the 2019-20, the, the COVID season, that, that got cut short. You had obviously a five-star beside Jordan James. You had a, a four-star mid-roll and enrollee in Vescovi, but you still had, I mean, that roster, I guess Epons was a borderline four-star, or I, think, I guess maybe, you know, athletically he's a four-star. Basketball player skills-wise, he wasn't, but, you know, you had him as, as technically a four-star, but still that, that roster was comprised of a lot of borderline three-star, four-star players of guys like Fulkerson, freshmen like Olivia Camois, Roche Plasic, who was, you know, again, another, not really mid-year transfer, but a guy who wasn't eligible to the, to, to the middle of the year, or I guess really sometime in January. Um, I'm trying to remember who some of the other players were on that team. Uh, with, like I said, you, you got the Monte Turner. Through Pember. Yeah, Pember. Um, you had Turner, but then he ended up missing the rest of the season after his his elbow. He just couldn't keep, couldn't keep going in December. Bowden, who again wasn't a highly rated player, and again mentioned, you know, once he didn't have the guys around him, you saw what he was. So this past season was really the first time you saw what it was like to see an infusion of more talent in the roster. And in this upcoming season, I think it's going to be even more so. You're going to see several five-stars, several four-stars, and you're still going to have, you know, John Fulkerson out there. You're still going to have other guys who weren't highly rated, super gifted athletes coming out of high school. Fulkerson, I think, is a more gifted athlete than what, really probably a lot of people realize in, in terms of just what he brings to the table as a 6'9", 220 type of player. But looking at the roster right now, I mean, you're going to have Kenny Chandler as a five-star, Brandon Huntley Hatfield as a five-star, Josiah Jordan James as a five-star, Javai Meshack and um, Jonas Adu in this, this signing class are both four-stars coming off the bench. Uh, Victor Bailey Jr., I want to say he was a high three-star, so kind of a borderline guy, but you know, he's he's a multi-year player who's who's been in two power five programs. Justin Powell, who I think was a three-star, but was a guy who, again, flashed a lot of potential at, at Auburn and, and showed some, some you know, skills there. So you, you have, a, again, this is going to be a, a more highly rated roster than Tennessee's had probably in modern era because, well, Bruce Pearl did do, you know, some good recruiting. I don't think he had this type of level of talent, kind of consistent talent from, you know, five through seven, you know, from one, or I guess one through seven on the roster. Uh, we, we talked before you probably need to go eight, eight, nine deep, but I'm, I'm just saying, you know, that kind of talent from a one through seven, I don't think Tennessee's really had talent and everything though. So I, I don't know, you know, that's a great question, Gene. I just don't know if we can 
truly honestly answer until we've seen you know this past season we we saw kind of what that looked like not great does this season repeat that pattern or does this season does Tennessee have a better year do they go and make you know at least to the sweet 16 do they make an elite eight run after that what about the next season would you bring it in you know looking at that that 22 class of guys like BJ Edwards of guys like uh, not Akbar, but the case in Wallace I mentioned earlier some some other guys you have coming in that are you know high four star five star prospects that Tennessee's looking at in the 22 class and you know again in the transfer market what's the, the transfer market's also going to be an interesting one because I think that that to me Gene is the the next kind of big game changer whereas you know 10 years ago it was the one and done with Calipari coming in and then kind of changing the landscape in the SEC with that with the one and done and that being a big thing. Now, you look at what Baylor did, you look at what Arkansas did, you look at a couple other schools in men's basketball this past year that were very transfer-reliant. I think that's going to be the next, you know, quote-unquote one-and-done type of thing of, of, I wouldn't say fad, but like the next way that teams try to construct their rosters and say, hey, this can work. Look at Baylor. They they had a very transfer-heavy roster. They won a national title. Look at Arkansas. They went from, you know, a team that was okay the previous year to suddenly they were challenging for the SEC title and, and, and made a you know a decent run in the in the NCAA tournament too. I think the transfer thing, you know, how much does Rick Barnes embrace that? Is that something he embraces? And if not, is that something the next coach embraces more? Because Barnes is he's he's embraced it to an extent. He's brought in a transfer I I think almost I think every year but one of his his uh his years at Tennessee so far. But it's not been like multiple guys every single year. Where, whereas you look at Arkansas, where they brought in, you know, what I think like four transfers last year. You look right now, this offseason, where we've had multiple SEC schools bring in three or four or five guys as transfers. Tennessee just brought in one with Justin Powell. So is that something that Rick Barnes embraces more? And is that a model that's going to work long term? Is that you know is the Baylor or the Baylors and the Arkansas kind of more of flashes in the pan is that just because this is a new thing like with the one and done where there was a little bit more success with that early on a little bit there's still writing on the wall i think that it's not a, a long-term success story but really the past five six years those those one and done heavy teams haven't been the most successful teams hasn't been the teams that make those deep ncw tournament runs we talked about that last time united did a podcast together gene looking at the you know the dukes in the last few years the north carolina's last few years the kentucky's the last few years and they're their lack of success in deep tournament runs. Kansas, I guess, can also pops to mind too, the, the typical blue bloods that are doing the one and done model. Does the transfer model become that same thing? Does it become the new one and done? Does it become the new model that coaches rely on? I think that to me, does that change what's being built or how you build things at Tennessee? And if it does, does that change how you approach who comes after Rick Barnes? Because I, I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to follow is how much this transfer market really shakes things up and if that's the new model that coaches are going to try to follow yeah and i think um and i think it's why it, it was it was a question worth posing but i don't think there's an answer yeah uh, just because i do that's think question. it's going to take it's going to take some time because i mean it's not just tennessee that's going that's going through this is every school in college basketball that's going through one-time waivers and uh one-time you know one-time transfers and uh, and, and so it's going to cause a lot of people to have to reevaluate a lot of stuff. And look, there was some speculation that that could have been maybe a root cause of you know, Coach K and Roy Williams to uh, to step aside with everything going on. Yep. Because uh, there's a lot. And, 
But like when I look at a Tennessee, this is the best roster that he's had. If we're just being honest, like on, yeah. on paper, this is most likely the best roster he's ever had. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see just exactly how far it goes. Like if he continues to go in this direction in, in future seasons, uh, like this year, you know, like I think they're going to lose what two guards. Uh, well, I mean, I think they Bailey's gone after this year. Probably. And uh, Kenny Chandler's gone after this year. <laughs> yeah. So I think, so you're, yeah, it's just, I mean, we're just being honest there. Who knows? Maybe Powell, maybe Powell has a good year and decides to, you know, to hang it up. Uh, you, you, you want to believe that, uh, uh, I, I think, you know, I think that BJ Edwards is, you know, just from things I've gathered, uh, it is in a good position to be, you know, to end up, you know, choosing Tennessee. Um, I'll be interested to see what Quante Berry does. Another 22 recruit. Um, I would, I'll be interested to see what Tennessee does with, B.J. Edwards and Quante Berry because those two are very close to each other, um, like very close, and they've both been offered, obviously. Um, but does Tennessee bring in two freshman guards and then maybe go try to find transfers for the rest? Like roster building, I think will be interesting um, for everybody going forward because how many spots do you use on on freshmen, incoming freshmen? How many do you save for the portal? Because you just never know who's going to be there. I think you always want to kind of leave one, one or two available for for the portal. Uh, I mean, heck, Tennessee because they had options in uh, April, completely reshaped their roster this year, uh, this off season. I mean, like they what they didn't. Who did they sign in November? Uh, Mayshack and Chandler. Yeah, it was just uh, it was just Chandler and Mayshack. Yeah. So and. You know, and everybody's woe is me in this whole roster because it's like, man, they stink. Then all of a sudden, you get a do. You think you get Powell, or you get Powell, then you get a do. Here comes Huntley Hatfield. And now you're looking and you're thinking, wow, they've done some stuff with this roster. And so now, instead of Eve Pons, we now have Brandon Huntley Hatfield. And I can tell you, I mean, we talked about this last time, I'm pretty sure. Uh, that's an upgrade. By every definition of the word upgrade, it's like the little meme on Twitter where it's like you put Eve Pons, and then you have the upgrade, and then all of a sudden you got Brendan Huntley Hatfield. Because <laughs> I promise you, that's exactly what it is. Uh, just as good of an athlete, five inches taller, uh, already as good of a shooter. You know, Pons turned into a serviceable shooter by the end of his career, but uh, it took four years or whatever long it took. I guess it was four. And for two years, I mean, he got screamed at because he'd, he'd never get the ball off his hip. Wouldn't shoot. Would not shoot. Like he got 10 threes that year. Sweet 16 season. Um, so um, Huntley Hatfield's coming in with the expectation of starting. You got Josiah James. You've got all you. You've added all these pieces, and you've got pieces coming back. Now, do the pieces fit? It appears to me as though they do. Um, so how do you? So how do you make those pieces fit next season? And we're way ahead of the game, but I mean that's when we're talking, having these questions and conversations about 
roster building and who could be a good fit. Like these are questions that are going to come up. Like how is the roster being built now? And if this if this leads to like three a three to five year run of success, and Rick decides he's like seventy three years old, and decides he wants to shut it down, then whoever the predecessor, I mean, whoever's next in line, can they maintain that? And who knows? Maybe, um, uh, maybe uh, Rob Lanier has built something for seven years. And sometimes you can usually see tea leads kind of go on with a, a coach is turning down other jobs. You know, those mid-major schools, the coach stays there a couple extra years is for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it's because they're waiting for a job, unless it's the case of Greg Marshall, in which case he's just, just because he's crazy and can't get another job. <laughs> uh, there's always a reason. <sighs> yeah, usually they're holding out for something. And so uh, you can you can look and tell. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's their next step. I mean, he is a Rick assistant. He, he you know, he hopefully you know, at that time uh, would have had like seven years of success. If we're talking five years down the road, um, and like I said, all those, th- all those are things. And like I said, is why I pose the question because we're in year three of this new recruiting thing. And again, if he goes twenty-three and twelve this year, something along those lines with this, and I'm not talking about amount of talent i don't care about that that'll take care of itself what do you do with it like if they go 23 and 12 this level of talent can you keep doing things this way um where you're bringing in all these you know ridiculously talented. maybe you're just better off with the lovable underdogs but now how do you how do you tell your fan base that you spoiled yeah i know we brought all these guys in and you know, Keon Johnson was the NBA Rookie of the Year, but <laughs> there's something there's something about this three star prospect out of uh, you know whatever uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or whatever, wherever. That's probably a horrible example, but uh, <laughs> St. Louis, Missouri. Let's we'll go there. You know, we've got this three star prospect out of St. Louis who yeah, I, I like the cut of his jib. I do. I like the cut of his jib. We're going to go back to this recruiting this way and we'll just build them up and the kids are really good basketball player um because like that it appears like that to this point that's worked better but there were you know there were mistakes made while everybody was loving the things that were happening with those youthful prospects i mean with those first couple years uh that that team that won 31 games I'm pretty sure was seven deep and there's a, I always say there's a difference between ha- being seven deep uh, and having a seven man rotation you know, if you're seven deep if you have a seven man rotation then you feel good about number eight and number nine um, if you're seven deep you don't feel good about number eight and they did not feel good about number eight so for all the love that was made of those seven players that went out and played with 12% and uh, either Bowden or Turner coming off the bench on those teams, um, in hindsight, they had nothing else beyond that. It was Derek Walker after that. So now, like I said, we, we talked about this. We're at a point where you do feel as though now – some of the players that were, were, were projecting some of the players, and we have no clue exactly how they're going to look, but you kind of project a dude to be a good player. 
I don't know if I did personally right away. I don't know. I don't know what his role is expected to be. If he should, in my, in my personal opinion, if he if he's just expected to uh, rebound and block shots, then I think he could be good next year. If people are expecting an offensive explosion out of him, I personally don't think, and we can revisit this in six months. Um, I personally don't think that that's going to be him in this system. Because um, I don't think they're going to let both Huntley Hatfield and Adu just live out in the perimeter. One of those guys have to go down. And it just appears to me that Adu is more likely. That's a role that he's not played much before. So we'll see. We'll see. Like, uh, I mean, like uh, from what we've seen from star rankings and stuff, they've certainly improved the roster. And if you get a few of these kids to come back next year, and you bring in a, a new crop and maybe some of those kids show promise, now you have a chance. And now we can look at this conversation and say, now we know what Rick is building. You know, and and it looks like it did in 2017 and 2018. And it looks like that 2018-2019 team. And it's looking like some of those teams who are competing for championships, not just, you know, whatever, you know, Thanksgiving tournament titles or whatever. Like legitimately competing for conference championships, we're in the we're in the race in fe- in late February, when you know when ten- you know when the SEC inevitably puts Kentucky and LSU and Alabama and like Arkansas or whoever's hot at that point, Florida, um, at the end of you know those around February, around Valentine's Day when they you know put them on that schedule, you're looking at a conference race where. You know, Tennessee's like eleven and four, and LSU's like ten and five, and it's like a must-win game down in Baton Rouge, and those games matter at that point. I think that's what you're trying to get to with this team and all these other teams, as opposed to just saying, "Well, we're kind of in the race, but hey, we got those five-star guards. Um, you want to build, and this year will be telling as to whether or not Rick is going to be able to succeed." building uh, with the sort of prospects that can make you a national champion in three to five years if you hit on these prospects. Because if you do and you've got some of these kids coming back, you will be competing for a national championship. Like there's, no way, there's no other way around it. It's very well said. Um, I don't think I have anything else to add to that. And I, I, To close out the podcast, though, I, I remember, Gene, we were talking before we hit record here that there was something else I want to talk about, and I could not remember the third topic. I remembered it. It's the uh, the volunteers team, the 2021 volunteers team that the roster for the TVT tournament. That just mentioned it really, really quickly. Don't have a you know don't want to dedicate a whole podcast episode to it, but it's worth mentioning. The if you, don't, if you all don't know what the volunteers are, what the TVT is, it's this uh, big tournament that is a alumni rosters of different programs and also just kind of area things. There's there's a couple. Um, teams, I think, that are just kind of like a Midwest area or, you know, this whatever area that not just specific to one school. But Tennessee's in it. Tennessee has, I, th- I think, one of the, they said on here, one of the deeper rosters. I, th- I think they're saying that because of just they have a lot of guys on the team, but wouldn't necessarily say they're all like, I don't think all going to be ballers necessarily at this point in their careers. But uh, I want to go over this this roster. It, it is a, it's, a, it's a roster full of names that I think Vol fans are all going to remember and say, 
wow, those those are really good players back in the day, and I'd be curious to see what they look like now. They're some of them ten years removed from playing at Tennessee. You have the GM Bobby Mays. That shouldn't surprise anybody. Ron Slay is the head coach, which that, that's a good head coach. I think he's going to be plenty fiery out there. The roster itself consists of Chris Lofton. He he's one of the best players on the in the whole thing. He's been playing overseas. He's still been playing really well overseas. He's going to be one of the best players in the whole league. I don't, I don't care what you're looking at. You have Chris Lofton. He'll be joined by Wayne Chisholm, Lamonte Turner, Jordan Bowden, Cam Tatum, Juwan Smith, Duke Cruz, John Fields, and your two newest additions are Tyler Smith and J.P. Prince. Gene, that's a, that's a list of names that I remember, well, obviously Turner and Bowden, I remember all of them except maybe I don't remember John Fields as much because he didn't do a ton at Tennessee, but I remember every one of those other players, though, playing at Tennessee and actually going to games uh, of pretty much all those guys and seeing them play in Thompson Bowling at Tennessee and watch or watching them on TV and, you know, obviously the, the Elite Eight run with, with Prince and Chisholm, um, watching Chris Lofton hit threes all, all across the court. Um, that That's, I mean, if this was... A, I feel like if this was a team that was constructed for this tournament three, four years ago, they might be one of the probably top three teams. And as it is, I think Chris Lofton's going to be... Lofton, Turner, and Bowden are going to be... Obviously, they're in the best playing shape, I think, of all these other guys. They're going to be ones, I think, doing the bulk of the carrying. But those are three guards. Big men-wise, I don't know really any team that's going to have a whole lot of big men from an alumni roster. That's going to scare you a whole lot. But name-wise, you have Wayne Chisholm, you have Tyler Smith... You have John Fields, Duke Cruz. Those are some good names of Tennessee history. I was, I'll be curious to see how much those guys have in the tank uh, playing in this tournament. But this is still exciting. That This is something that over the summer, this is like a type of over the summer thing that basketball fans need. And, and basketball fans, I think, love to see. We, we've talked, I think we've we talked about this team off air, you know, not recording. You and I have. And we also talked about, you know, that the big three, the 3v3 tournament thing. Uh, this is a, I think this starts in July. It's, they're competing for $1 million. It'll be aired, I want to say it'll be on ESPN. I, I could be wrong, but I think some like ESPN affiliate you know, channels or whatever. Um, but the whole bracket is going to be announced, I think, June 21st. Uh, most of the teams are already... It's going to be 64 teams, so it's going to be like a full, quote-unquote, full like NCAA tournament bracket type of thing. Um, but you have quite a few teams. And looking at this uh, thing that the TBT themselves put out, of power rankings for the, the, the teams, uh, Tennessee Volunteers number five. So they're obviously pretty high thought of uh, early on right now. You have Ohio State at number two, and uh, you and I were talking about this like a few weeks ago, Gene. They're, they're my pick. Ohio State's roster is I'll, – I'll try to pull it up here, but they have some pretty darn good players on their roster from for, for – especially for an alumni team. I'm thinking, man, this is – it's going to be a tough team to beat. So I'll try to pull it up, but uh, you know, share your thoughts on, on – Tennessee's roster and the fact that, you know, I, I think this is something, this is the type of thing that is perfect for the months of June and July when we don't have a whole, we have, there's just baseball going on. I guess this year we'll have the, <laughs> weren't supposed to have the Olympics and who knows what we actually will, but you know, we'll have the Olympics this year, but this is an, a, a typical kind of off season summer year. This is a perfect type of thing for fans to go and watch and kind of relive memories and also get to watch some guys I haven't seen play probably in a while because they've been overseas go out and play and say, hey, I remember them playing at Tennessee. Hey, I remember them playing at my favorite school. This is cool to go out and watch them play. Yeah, and, you know, and I, I think I'll pretty much pull up the same story you did just because you read it in the same order that I was reading it. So, um, 
like just looking at it, I mean, you've got a certain level of talent. I mean, if what you what you would hope for is that Wayne Chisholm and Duke Cruz are in shape. I don't really remember John Fields. Um, I remember the other guys. Uh, I, I'm assuming John Fields is a big in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, he was a he was a transfer from Memphis. I want to say maybe. I'll double check that, but I'm pretty sure he transferred yeah, from no, Memphis to Tennessee. I'm looking him up. He was. Uh, uh, he, he was, a, uh, I think, a six nine, six ten type of guy. Yeah, he was six nine two twenty. East Carolina at UNC Wilmington. That's where he came from. That's okay. right. Okay. Um, I mean, he blocked forty one shots, and so I mean, um, I'm sitting here reading, you know, decent, you know, decent college career. I mean, uh, thirty three. He just turned thirty three last week. So, um, if he's in, I mean, if he's in decent shape, along with. Cruz and Chisholm, then you have a chance because you certainly have quality guards. I mean, as you said, at Lofton, Turner, and Bowden will probably handle most. I think Juwan will be good for, you know, like a heat check game at some point because, I mean, he's Juwan, and Juwan's good for a heat check game. And, uh, you know, like Tatum, uh, was a solid player. Smith was a solid player. Smith was always Smith was always like my type of player because he was, you know, jack of all trades, master of none type player uh, that did pretty much everything well on the team. So, uh, and look, and Bobby, you know, I think Bobby wants to win. Oh, so yeah. I don't <laughs> think that he's going to like he may have done a couple guys favors. I put them on the roster, but at the end of the day, I mean, he—I think he's given Ron a, a requisite amount of talent and a decent amount of talent that can compete, that he can compete with and potentially win with. Because, I mean, he's got the best shooter in the tournament. Um, he's got a couple guys in Turner and Bowden who have shown they can hit shots. Obviously, Jawan can hit shots, but. You know, I don't know how much Jawan actually plays. Uh, him being a part of the B-Maze AAU program gives him ample opportunity to get shots up. And, you know, maybe he's using that opportunity. And if, look, if, if Jawan's in shape, that's four shooters, like four legitimate shooters. You know, if Lamont, I mean, you could probably make an argument that Lamonte Turner is the worst shooter in that group. And he ain't a bad shooter. So um, if, obviously, that's dependent on, like, Jawan. Like being in shape. I mean, I mean, he is what, like thirty-four or something like that. I mean, so it's yeah. not like I'm. Um, I'm certainly not denigrating. I know Juwan. I saw Juwan in Cleveland like not long ago. Uh, I talked to him for a while. So um, I'm not trying to. I know what that dude is as a basketball player. And if he's in shape and he's working, which I do think he is, because again, he's surrounded by B Mays guys now, because he's a part of that family, that program then Tennessee's got a chance because, I mean, as we see, as I'm sitting here glancing at this Suns-Lakers game right now and the Suns have already hit four threes and they're up 14-5, to five, uh, three, four minutes of the game. Like we're, The game is changing now to where it's very guard-oriented and guard-heavy. And if you've got guards, then you've got a chance. Um, so, like, if you've got four that can shoot – that can shoot from 30 feet out 
It'll, I think that they'll be a fun team to watch at the very least because they're going to get a lot of shots up. Wayne, hopefully he wears the headband. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he can hit threes. You know, Tyler Smith can hit threes. Tatum can hit threes. Uh, I always I always recall Cruz as more of just like a banger type guy. Uh, that was my recollection of him. I could be wrong, but... You, you think uh, we see J.B. Prince dunk and jaw at people? He'd like to talk yeah. now. JP like to oh, talk. Oh, they all did. Uh, yeah, they, they, all, no, they did. all did. Good, yeah. good point. Yeah, Except they, for Chris. I mean, Lofton yeah, did not talk like, a whole lot. Yeah, like the Juwan, I mean, the Juwan Kevin Stalling story. I mean, well, I mean, heck, Tennessee basketball had some of that. This this sounds bad, but I don't need to go into much more detail to say that Tennessee basketball with Chris Lofton was kind of similar to Florida football with Tebow. I don't need to go <laughs> I don't need to go into details as to I mean, if you're listening to the podcast, you're nodding your head. If you think about it, you're like, yeah, yeah. I would put, I would put, yeah, on those teams. I would put Chris out there every chance I got, and uh, he he would be my spokesperson under any and every circumstances. Um, so, so yeah, like I mean, and, and look, like they use that, like you know, like if you've played any level of basketball, like you're going to use that. I mean that. Uh, use that talk, you know. I'm like, you've got guys from I don't know where Duke Cruz is from, but I know where Jawan's from. He's from Cleveland. Uh, you know, I know. I mean, who else? I mean, Tyler. I mean, heck, JP Prince is from Memphis. Like the mm-hmm. mentality that you know, like we. I mean, people can laugh at me when I say that Cleveland's turned into like a little basketball mecca. But I mean, look, Tennessee fans, you may be getting the kid. Who was a very underrated prospect? Who's been a very underrated prospect here very soon? Uh, I I don't know. I mean, we'll see what happens with Quante Berry, but uh, that kid's an underrated prospect. Just here to tell you, uh, I've seen him this summer. He's that kid's coming on strong. It's another one. Uh, so I mean, we're talking about the places like Cleveland and Memphis, where. Uh, yeah, well, let me rephrase that. Memphis and Cleveland. I'm not about to put Cleveland above them. Basketball, <laughs> whatever. But, uh, but places where it's tough and you've got to, like, you've got to grind and you've got to work, you know, and so, and you've got to have that chip on your shoulder for whatever the case may be. And, you know, that, you know, presents itself on the court. And uh, so, like, I, I loved, I always, like, Chisholm was from, like, what, Pulaski or something? No, 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 no. He was from somewhere, Bolivar, Bolivar. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, like, you're talking about guys who who thrive in those environments. And, well, you know, you trash talk, all of a sudden they put 40 on you. And I don't care, like, look, an out of an out of shape Juwan Smith will give you 40 if you give him a reason to. I don't care. <laughs> Chris, you know, Chris Lofton will just smile at you the entire time uh, while he's giving you 37. So, I mean, you know, with, with 11 threes. So, like, I, I'll, I'll be interested to see, you know, at the timing of it. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have a little bit of time to watch. You know, obviously July is AAU, so I'll be kind of mm-hmm. tied up with some of that stuff. But I, I, I think it's an interesting thing to watch. It's at a perfect time, as you said at the beginning, before I started just dribbling. Um, but it's fun, and I think you know it, it brings in fan bases that just want a reason to watch basketball in, in July. I don't necessarily know what that reason is. So the reason why I think 
I think G and I would are both think that Ohio State's probably the favorite in this one is three names. David Lighty, Evan Turner, Jared Sollinger. Uh, those are all guys who either you know, just finished playing in the NBA or in David Lighty's case is still playing overseas and was just named a, a French League All-Star in, in 2019. So, I mean, he's he's still playing over the French League. So those three names alone, David Lighty, Evan Turner, Jared Sollinger, make me think, yeah, Ohio State's got a pretty darn good team there. They also have a guy in William Buford who is a really good three-point shooter um, in the, the kind of 2009-12 range around there. At the same time, Tennessee was playing Ohio State um, a couple of times at that point. So they're called Carmen's Crew, the Ohio State alumni team. I think they're going to be <laughs> pretty good <laughs> if I had yeah. to guess there. Uh, actually, I think the let's see, the the championship is played, I want to say it's in Dayton. Yeah, so the championship will be played in Dayton. The, the states that are hosting it are Nebraska, Illinois, Ohio, and West Virginia, which is those are all the, the, some of those are interesting places to be hosted. But anyway, the, the championship will be in Dayton, so that makes sense to me. But that's yeah, I wanted to bring that up because again, I didn't want to dedicate a whole podcast to it, but I thought it was worth mentioning. We'll, we'll talk about them as this, you know, as they play and stuff, and talk about how they're doing because I'll be it'll be fun to watch some of those guys, especially Lofton, because I've seen highlights and stuff from him playing overseas, but I haven't really, you know, obviously gotten to see him play live in a long time. So it'd be cool to see him out there. Playing, and I think you're you're talking about the age and stuff. I I think, I guess John, I, I guess Lofton and Juwan are probably the two oldest guys on that team. I would say of, of the players, because obviously Ron Slay would be the oldest, but he's he's the coach. He's not playing. But I think of those guys, I think those two are probably the oldest. I mean, Lofton's probably the oldest, but he's also one of the only ones that's still like playing consistently. I, I know Lamonte and Bowden. I think are you know trying to get roster spots. I don't know if they they've been overseas or not yet especially with COVID and everything happening. Um, but he, he may be the oldest, but he may, he's still the best one on the team by a long shot, I think. So that, they'll be fun to watch. Um, they'll be fun reminiscing and also being a watch for Vol fans this summer as they wait for this season to begin. I don't think there's anything else I want to mention here, so that'll be how we end the podcast. So thank you all for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to all the previous episodes. If you're new here, Thank you for letting us be this first episode. Uh, subscribe to us today so you don't miss another one. And we'll be back again next week, hopefully earlier in the week, for a new episode of Vol Basketball Fever. Signing off for Gene, I'm Nathaniel. And again, this has been another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever podcast. Thank you for listening to the Vol Basketball Fever podcast. Subscribe to the show so you'll never miss another episode. 